Have you ever had that feeling when you leave the doctor's office and think, what did they just say? Or have any burning questions you didn't have time to ask? Or, I don't remember anything that just happened in that appointment. Or even, were they speaking my language? Yeah, us too. That's where we come in. We're the podcast dedicated to helping you understand what your doctor said about that thing you saw your doctor for in the first place. We understand it can be an information overload. We're here to help. I'm Dr. Josh Fletcher, a family medicine resident at Northrop General Hospital in Toronto. And I'm Jake Bloom, the person who doesn't know what's happening at the doctor's office. Welcome to Dr. Dictionary. I just want to make a quick disclaimer that this podcast isn't meant to be a replacement for a traditional doctor's appointment, nor is it meant to be providing medical advice. Rather, it's meant to be a supplement to your doctor's visit and explain why your doctor asked what they asked and help you explain the diagnosis and common treatment plans. Lastly, doctors often have very different styles and approaches to a patient and their diagnosis. If we discuss a question or treatment plan that your doctor didn't mention, that doesn't mean that they were wrong. This could represent a different in practice style or simply the fact that your doctor knows you better than we do and has created a treatment plan that better fits your lifestyle. Welcome to another edition of Dr. Dictionary, the podcast explainer for all your questions before, during, or after your visit to the doctor. I'm Jake Bloom, and joining me as always is Toronto resident Dr. Josh Fletcher. What's up, Doc? I'm excited for this episode, and how about you? No, I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Um, so Josh, why don't you start by telling the listeners a bit about this top, the topic for this week, uh, ADD and ADHD, and what makes them different? So it's a common question that we get in the office, what's the difference between ADD and ADHD? If we're looking at the actual definition of the two words, ADHD stands for Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder, and ADD stands for Attention Deficit Disorder. Now, in the end, we kind of group them all together as ADHD, and we have two categories. We have the inattention symptoms and the hyperactivity symptoms. Overall, we have to have either a persistent pattern of one of these two types of symptoms to meet criteria for a diagnosis of ADHD. It's very important to note, though, that it's very normal for kids to be hyper and not to listen in some situations, and it doesn't mean you meet criteria for ADHD. These are symptoms that specifically interfere with function or development of your child. So first, when we talk about the inattention symptoms, some examples. They fail to give close attention to details. You're making careless mistakes in school, work, or other activities. Difficulty sustaining attention. You don't really seem to listen when spoken to directly. You don't follow through an instruction. Difficulty organizing tasks and activities. You avoid or are reluctant to engage in tasks that require sustained mental effort. So like schoolwork or homework. You're losing things often. You're easily distracted. And you're often forgetful in daily activities. These are the inattention symptoms of ADHD. In the other basket, we have the hyperactivity symptoms. You're often fidgeting with your hands or your feet or squirming in your seat. You're leaving your seat in situations where sitting is expected of you, like in the classroom. You're running or climbing excessively when it's inappropriate. That restlessness feeling. Difficulty playing or engaging in leisure activities quietly. People often describe you like you're driven by a motor or always on the go. You're talking excessively. You're blurting out answers. 
you have difficulty awaiting your turn, and you're often interrupting others or intruding on others. These are more of the hyperactivity symptoms. So in the end, when we're trying to diagnose somebody with ADHD, we're thinking to ourselves, do they meet criteria for the inattention symptoms, the hyperactivity symptoms, both or neither? And that's kind of what's going through our mind when we're asking you all these questions when you come into the doctor's office. So you can be diagnosed for both the inattention and hyperactivity parts? Exactly. So you can have both the combined presentation of both types of it, or you can have predominantly inattentive, predominantly hyperactive, impulsive, or combined. Now, you mentioned earlier that lots of energy, especially in kids, can be very common. So how long would you say they need to be having these symptoms for it to be considered ADHD or ADD? So your symptoms actually have to be occurring for over six months to meet the diagnosis for ADHD. Josh, is it common just to see these symptoms at home? So it's very common and parents will often ask us, my child is misbehaving at home, they're not paying attention or they meet criteria at home. Is that enough to diagnose them with ADHD? And the answer is no. We need to see these symptoms in multiple settings to make the diagnosis. And that's really the reason why we're asking for information from teachers or other educators, report cards, etc., to get more of a holistic picture of what's going on in multiple settings to see if these symptoms are persistent or permeate different settings that your child might be in. How come it has to be more than one setting? Sometimes when children are at home, they might act in a different way than they're at school or when they're at daycare or wherever they might be. So these symptoms of ADHD have to not be only setting specific, but they have to apply to their entire life. So it has to interfere with their function, interfere with their development in multiple different settings to meet diagnosis. So sometimes, and what's very common, is parents will come home and say, you know, my child's misbehaving at home. All they're doing is sitting from the TV. They're not listening to me. And there could be other things going on there rather than ADHD. Right. Whereas if these symptoms are persisting at home, they're happening at school, then we see it kind of permeates these multiple settings. And it's not just a home problem or a parental child relationship problem, but rather more of an ADHD problem. Right. No, that makes sense. So what methods do you use to screen patients for ADHD? So questionnaires are an amazing way to assess the extent of symptoms. How come you use questionnaires? Well, questionnaires are an excellent and quick way to determine exactly which symptoms are happening and when they're happening. On the actual questionnaire that you'll fill out, they go over, like I said, the actual symptoms or diagnostic criteria of ADHD. That helps us determine which symptoms are worse than your child and if we can actually make the diagnosis of ADHD. I see. We don't only base our diagnosis on the questionnaire, but it helps us gather a lot of information quickly from multiple different settings. So when someone comes in to ask you about uh, where the ADHD is coming from, they must be wondering also if there's any fault involved. Does that ever happen? That is extremely common. Often when we see parents for the first time about ADHD, one of the most common questions that come up is about how this is their fault, or is their child lazy and just not wanting to listen, or did we raise our child in a wrong way now that they're like this? Hmm. In the end, it's very important to note that this is not your fault. And it's a very common misconception that this means you or your child are lazy and not wanting to work. With ADHD, there are actual known deficits in the brain and a disruption to some of the chemicals in the brain that help you control and regulate the symptoms of ADHD. There's also a genetic basis to ADHD. 
It's more common, for example, to have ADHD if you have a parent or even two parents with ADHD. There can be over a 50% risk if both parents have ADHD. Oh, really? Yeah, and there's also thought to be some risk factors related to pregnancy as well. In the end, it's very important to note, like I said, it's not your fault and there's actual a basis to why your child or yourself might be having these symptoms. Do you ever have it where parents come in not necessarily knowing that they too have undiagnosed ADHD? What can happen sometimes is when you start asking these questions about their child, parents will start to think about their own childhood or even themselves now and realize that a lot of these things we're asking about apply to them as well. Oh, really? And that, that's extremely common. And it can really show you that genetic role that's associated with ADHD. Some of the suggestions we give, parents can actually incorporate into their own life and see that they can become more successful as well. So kind of going back a bit to the questionnaires, um, do symptoms of ADHD apply to all activities? So no, and it's very normal. And another very common question that we see in the office is that me or my child, we are able to sit and watch TV or play video games for multiple hours and no problem. But when we kind of get down to doing schoolwork, then there's an issue. And it really goes to show you that these symptoms do not apply to every single activity. It's when you need that sustained attention, for example, when you're doing schoolwork or homework, that it can be a bigger issue. Yeah. So just to reiterate, this doesn't mean that you're lazy or your child is lazy. It just applies differently into some situations. For example, you can still do last minute homework. If you had a deadline that's due in 12 hours and you haven't started, all of a sudden you have all this adrenaline in your body that in a way is fixing that chemical disruption in your brain. And it really helps you focus and finish that work. But in the end, if that happens every single time, it's not really conducive to being a good student, to doing well in your job, and can really have detrimental effects on your life. Now, I've always heard of ADHD as a disorder commonly found in children, or that people get it in childhood. Is it possible to get it in adulthood? Yes, it's very possible and actually not uncommon to have ADHD in adulthood. It's most common to have the ADD subtype or the inattentive subtype over the hyperactive subtype in adulthood because those hyperactivity symptoms tend to improve with time. In adulthood, we see kind of a different constellation of symptoms in a way. Adults are more easily bored. They more commonly have multiple jobs. They're easily distracted, often late for work. And it can often go with a depression where you feel like you're not living up to your potential. Again, just to note, a lot of these symptoms overlap with many other psychiatric conditions or mental health conditions. And it's normal to have many of these symptoms with some of these other conditions. But we also have to think about undiagnosed ADHD in this population. Or maybe many of these adults, like we were talking about before, had ADHD as a child that just went undiagnosed and they had great coping skills or a good support system at the time. But as they get older, now that you're at the end of high school, you're in university or your, your job, when the workload starts to pile up, you become more of an independent learner. These support systems and coping strategies start not to be enough. And that's when you can actually see the symptoms. That's when you can actually see the results of the ADHD. Could have been a straight A student back in elementary school. And now you're flunking out of university and you're like, what's happening? And it could be undiagnosed ADHD in that population. Well, that's interesting. So does that mean that you could have someone who either just never diagnosed their earlier ADHD 
as well as someone who just develops it later in life too. Yeah, so both are possibilities. And what's important to note there is it doesn't mean that your doctor made a mistake and not diagnosing ADHD as a child. You just might not have been showing the signs because you have an amazing support system that can help you with these sort of things. You have parents who could have got you a tutor or you went to these sort of tutoring sessions, for example, or you had amazing coping strategies to help you through this. When all that starts to fall away, then these symptoms become more prominent. And that more commonly happens in young adulthood. So what kind of effect does ADHD have on children in school? So ADHD, like we were talking about before, can really affect your performance in school, can affect your ability to sit still, affect your ability to focus, things like that. It doesn't necessarily mean your child will struggle in school, because like I was talking about, you can have great coping strategies, you can have a good support system, or if we employ these behavioral strategies and medications we're about to talk about, you can really have these symptoms quite well controlled and perform to the best of your abilities and live up to your potential. And is ADHD often diagnosed on its own, or are there other conditions often diagnosed with it? That's an amazing question, and it's really under-recognized that it is the norm to have other conditions diagnosed with ADHD. We estimate that about 70% of children have what we'd call a comorbid disorder or something else associated with their ADHD. Something that's really commonly associated with ADHD are learning difficulties. And that's why we often ask for a psychoeducational assessment or a psychoed assessment to help understand, is there an underlying learning disability that is either presenting like ADHD or present at the same time as ADHD? Other conditions that are often associated with ADHD include anxiety, depression, OCD, etc. And when we're first seeing you for ADHD, we're often asking about many of these symptoms as well because that way we can get a better idea of what's going on and devise a treatment plan that better meets your needs. So you're talking about treating people. How uh, do you treat ADHD? So the first thing always with any psychiatric conditions like we talked about in the depression series is education. And that's what we're talking about right now, explaining what ADHD is, that it's not your fault, it can have a genetic basis, etc. I was just going to say, it's amazing how much you can destigmatize something with education. And I feel like that's such an important step for so many people to get on the right track. Exactly. And that's always the first thing we think about in the treatment of these conditions. After that, again, like depression, we have the medication side and the non-medication side. With non-medications, those are the behavioral modifications that we do. And we always try to start with these with ADHD. Now, it's important to note for these modifications, consistency is key. You have to use them at home, at school, in other contexts as well. You have to keep using these suggestions in multiple different environments. So even if you're only seeing the issues at school, you would still need to be taking them all the time. Exactly. Now, some examples of some of these behavior modifications. Positive reinforcement techniques using praise, sticker charts, things like that, rather than putting them down, praising them for the things that they're doing well, providing structure to the day, and making your expectations explicit, simplifying, repeating, and writing down instructions rather than just handing them a long list, breaking down complex tasks into smaller components, 
keeping work periods and activities short and varied, and minimizing distractions. Using a timer to motivate task completion and schedule short breaks. Organizational aids, using agendas, checklists, calendars, things like that. And another big one like we are talking about before is contacting the school and making sure these things are happening at school. If you can, organize a psychoeducational assessment and look for learning disabilities. And if anything is present, you can advocate for having an individualized education plan for your child that can really help them succeed to the best of their abilities at work or at school. So we talked a lot about the behavior tricks you can use, um, but let's talk a bit more about medication. What are the medications you use for ADHD? The medications are stimulants, which work to help us focus. Now, there are many different types of stimulants, and all of them work similarly. The difference can be their time of action. How long do they last? Are they released immediately into the system, or do they take a longer time to be released, kind of like the delayed release of some of these medications? And your doctor can really help decide which one's best for you. Common ones you might have heard of before, Concerta, Bifentin, Ritalin, Adderall, Vyvanse, Dexedrin, these are the very common stimulants that we use. Now, if these don't work, there are also other medications we can try. How do these medications work? So they work like we talked about before to correct that chemical imbalance that exists in the brain. Now, they're called stimulants because they stimulate certain chemical release in the brain, and that helps with those symptoms of ADHD. How effective are these medications? So the medications are extremely effective and they're some of the most effective ones we have in all of mental health. Now, approximately 70% of children, adolescents, and adults will respond to any given stimulant. 90% will respond to at least one. So they're very effective. That being said, it's really important to have proper expectations. They'll help with the symptoms of ADHD. But like we said before, ADHD is often associated with many other conditions. Anxiety, depression, learning difficulties, etc. Now, these medications will not treat those comorbidities. It's not going to improve your anxiety, but it will help with the symptoms of ADHD. So again, having those proper expectations and knowing it's not a one-stop shop for all of your problems you might be having is really important. What are you looking for once these medications start to make sure they're actually working? What behaviors are you looking for or change in behaviors? So we're looking for an improvement in a lot of the symptoms that are happening at school. We can again fill out a similar questionnaire to see how these symptoms are improving. Last time you ranked this a 3, and now you're ranking this a 1. And that way you can actually see the difference in improvement and how these symptoms are getting better. Can someone be on this medication long term? So these medications have been shown to be safe and there's no issue with long-term use. That being said, due to the natural course of ADHD... You may not need to be on these medications long-term. Like we talked about earlier, the hyperactivity symptoms often outgrow with time. Some people get better with the inattention symptoms now that you employ some of these behavioral strategies. So not everybody needs them long-term, but they are beneficial long-term. And even though you're using these tests for school and measuring their behavior in school, it's still important to take the medication all the time, not just for school settings. Exactly. And another common misconception is that, you know, I'm not in school at the moment. Do I really need to take the medication? And the answer is yes, you really should be taking the medication every day when you're prescribed it. 
There are some cases where you can take kind of a, quote, drug holiday and not take the medication for extended period of time. But it's best to talk to your doctor about that and have that conversation with your doctor before yourself stopping the medication for whatever period of time. So what are the side effects for taking these medications? So again, as with any medication, not everyone experiences the side effects, but the common ones we see are insomnia, weight loss and decreased appetite, stomach upset, or other sort of gastrointestinal side effects. Some people have headaches, and some people can experience some increased anxiety or have heart palpitations or the feeling like your heart's beating out of your chest. And lastly, Josh, are there any resources you'd recommend for ADHD? So there are, and these are resources for both parents and children. A great website that you can go to is called CADRA, C-A-D-D-R-A, which stands for the Canadian ADHD Resource Alliance. There's also CADAC, the Center for ADD Awareness Canada, C-A-D-D-A-C. Another great website is called totallyadd.com, which has amazing videos about what it's like to live with ADHD and what it's like to experience some of the comorbidities or the other conditions that are associated with ADHD. Now, the site also has some videos that require payment to view, but a lot of them are quite worth it to get a better understanding of the diagnosis itself. And we'll try to link to those uh, websites in the description below. I think that does it for this episode of Dr. Dictionary. Josh, I wanted to thank you so much for sharing all this information with our listeners. Thanks, Jake. And as always, if you guys have any more questions, feel free to book another appointment with your doctor or send us an email at thedoctordictionary at gmail.com. I'd like to thank Dr. Stephen Gelber, a psychiatrist at Northrop General Hospital, for peer-reviewing this episode, and Nick and John Bragagnolo for recording the original music. Thanks for listening.